Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. It's the book of John, chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Please stand for the reading and reverence of God's holy and inerrant word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned around and said to him, Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Easter, everybody, and it's good to be here to share the Word of God with you. As we continue on worshiping God and hearing God's Word now, let us start with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so open our eyes so that we may see the wonders of your Word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us now hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid this servant now in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I do love it when kids give a presentation. Uh, it's always memorable, and it's all so very cute. Um, the last conference I came back from, so for the last two weeks, Pastor Paul has done a marvelous job preaching the Word of God. And I was away in Orlando, Florida for a conference. And this conference, mind you, started at 8 and ended around 8 or 9. So we were in this conference hall for about 12 hours at a time. And we had lunch breaks and various breaks in between. But what we saw there was pretty amazing. Uh, all they, like people who went to this conference, and next year when we have the conference, I would love it if all of you can join us too, as many as possible. It is Orlando, Florida, so you can make plans to see alligators or, and such, but uh, we didn't get to see any. But uh, people will bring their whole families, and it would be like a family of six, and they would just sit there in a row and just 
stay there for 12 hours. I was like, wow, this is something I have not seen before. And every once in a while, a kid would cry out and things like that. But it seemed like as though everybody was used to that. It's okay. And this is the kind of just scenario, this is the kind of culture that I really do love. You know, when we worship God, we worship God as one, as a family. And I do love it that we could worship God with our children, our parents, all of us together. In our church, in CGS, we get to do that twice a year. So I particularly enjoy times like this when our children can get to worship with us and they can see how their parents worship. And so today is a special day. But it's especially special because today is the day that we get to say to one another, Christ is risen, and we respond, He is risen indeed. The word indeed is from the Middle English, in truth, indeed. He is really risen. And it goes all the way back to ancient Greece when people would greet each other. So if you are a Christian, people will greet each other, Christos Anesti. That means Christ is risen. And the people will respond, Alithas Anesti. That means for real, in truth, He is risen. This is not just some emotional appeal that we were telling each other throughout the ages. This is fact. This is history. Christ is risen. And church tradition has it that when Mary Magdalene, who is in the particular passage that we've read, when she met the emperor of Rome, Emperor Tiberius, she had to have exclaimed, Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. We see this similar statement in Luke after the disciples met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and it says in Luke, the Lord has risen indeed. The resurrection, though, is something that none of his disciples ever expected. But after Jesus' death, we start seeing eyewitness accounts start popping up here and there. It's he's talking with them. And then over here, he's walking with them. And over there, he's eating with them. And over there, he's even cooking for them. And these eyewitness accounts start to pop up. And to this day, these eyewitness accounts have been shared on the pulpit, on the proclamation of the word. And to this day, people deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it important? And the answer is a resounding, yes, it's important. And you might wonder why people would want to deny the resurrection. Is it simply because it's too fantastical? Perhaps. But I would remind you that in the accounts that we read, all the disciples at first didn't believe. You know, when someone dies, it's normal to want to see them again, to long for them again. But no one would expect to see them again. But what if you saw evidence after evidence, person after person, from different places even, witnessing someone, seeing them, who just died? And people are like, maybe it's mass hallucination. Well, that's impossible because 
Hallucinations are personal. There is no such thing as mass hallucination. And you can't have mass hallucination when everyone's in different places. And Jesus was recorded to have been seen in 10 different places with different groupings of people at one time being 500 people. And it still doesn't account for the missing body in the tomb. And so people continue to give pushback. Well, well, maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he didn't really die. Maybe he was just really badly beaten and he was like dead. I mean, we've seen that happen in history, right? And once they put the spices on him and they wrapped him really tight, like, you know, you would wrap a newborn baby, nice and tight in those linen cloth strips, put him in the coolness of the cave, and maybe he got better and he walked down himself. So that was a predominant theory that many people started to think because they just didn't want to believe in the resurrection. So somehow, somehow all these things happened and then he rolled the stone away, which was sealed, defeated the Roman guards that were outside and went to the disciples to say that he was risen from the dead. This was a theory promoted in the 18th and 19th century, and it obviously has some insuperable difficulties. First, the Romans were masters in their craft, and their craft was death. They knew when someone was dead. It's recorded in Scripture that they didn't break the legs of Jesus because they knew that he had already died. Breaking the legs of someone who's crucified on the cross was to asphyxiate them further and faster because every time you were trying to breathe, you would have to push yourself up to even take a breath when you are crucified on the cross. It's that excruciating. It's that painful. It's that dreadful. And so when they saw Jesus, these professionals, these masters of their craft, that we don't need to break his legs because he's already dead. Not only that, they stuck a spear on his side. And when they stuck a spear on his side, blood and water gushed out. You know, that means that your heart literally exploded because it was trying to pump so hard because your body needed oxygen so it would pump so hard that your heart literally ruptures. And when you poke the side, blood and water gush out. Secondly, he was so badly beaten even before the crucifixion. How can... This man, after being beaten, after being crucified, after he's been declared dead, with no food and water, any kind of triage, just get up and walk out and start walking with people on the road to Emmaus for seven miles. You would think that people will notice, yo, you have holes in your feet and you're bleeding. You need a doctor. The people chatting with him didn't even notice him bleeding out. These theories don't make any sense because they'll grab at anything to say Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because it means something. If Jesus rose again from the dead, it means something. 
And there's the most pervasive theory that's against the resurrection. And that's the one that's written in the Bible, that the disciples of Jesus must have stolen the body of Jesus. Somehow, somehow, these fishermen stole and overpowered the soldiers guarding the tomb. And this is recorded while we see that the disciples fled in the most cowardly manner. And if the guards would admit to that, then they knew. If you were in the Roman army and you knew that you were supposed to guard something with the Roman seal and something happens, then you knew your life was forfeit. Even the Jewish leaders then would tell the guards, tell people that the disciples stole the body when they were sleeping. Mind you, they would have been punished so severely, even executed for the dereliction of their duty because the soldiers took their job so seriously. So the Jewish leaders tell them, look, we will handle Pilate for you. We'll give them a sum of money, and this becomes the dominant view that people have passed on. They will do anything to deny the resurrection. Why? In our current day, we have all these movements, and we have to support and fight for them. Our younger generation has it embedded in their core identity that we must fight for rights, freedoms, equity, and so on. And why is that? What will ultimately having every right, every freedom, every idea of fairness that you can think of really bring? Well, you would respond, utopia. And I will respond, no, it will not. And I will also respond, that's guaranteed. But even if it did, even if it did, let's say we could give you everything that you personally wanted, which, which is so insane because the list that you want is not the list that she wants and it's not the list that he wants either. But let's just say you give me a list of everything that you think is fair and good and you know, equitable and freeing, right? And I give you everything on that list. the list that you're working so hard to achieve. Even if you acquired every single thing, you will die. And with death comes a unique and grim sorrow. A sorrow unmatched by any other loss you will ever face. Because death is the price that must be paid for sin. There is no death that is unjust because the wages of sin must be paid. And the scriptures say, while the nations rage and continue to rage to this day, and while they plot in vain, which we literally see happen here, the Lord says he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. The Lord from eternity past has set a plan. He has set a king, and this king would die for his people. 
He would pay the wages of his people's sin, thus removing their sin as far as the east is from the west. The sin that brought misery, agony, and ultimately death is defeated. And ironically, but truly, it is with death that he defeats death. And his sacrifice is validated by the resurrection. Christ is the complete and all-satisfying sacrifice, and it is validated by God resurrecting him from the dead. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he is a liar. He is a charlatan. He is not a good teacher, not a good example for us to follow as the liberal church might want us to believe. He is a deceiver, a fraud, and a charlatan if he didn't rise from the dead. He continually taught his disciples, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth. While alive, he said, destroy this temple, which meant his body, and in three days I will raise it again. If Christ didn't rise, he lied, and he could not and did not pay anyone's wages, let alone his own. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have, this, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you think Christ is someone that's just going to let you live a good life now, we are the most to be pitied. But Paul continues, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen Asleep. The resurrection is the divine affirmation that Jesus' work of atonement on the cross is complete and sufficient. When God raised him from the dead, he was declaring that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and that the full and complete payment for sin has been received. The resurrection shows us that death has been conquered and eternal life is available to those that put their trust in Jesus. In Roman, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus made around 10 appearances after his resurrection. One we've read here with Mary Magdalene. He appeared to other women as well. 
He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Simon Peter, John, the ten minus Thomas, then the ten with Thomas. He appeared to seven of the apostles by the Sea of Tiberias while they were fishing, and he has them catch 153 fish and then cooks them breakfast. I wonder what his cooking tastes like. And then he appears to 500, teaches them for 40 days before he ascends to heaven. This is not some vague, foggy account that's written here. This is massive, detailed, eyewitness testimony, impossible to fabricate. And even if somehow you thought, somehow you thought that this was fabricated, there is no way and never has there been an instance where people would die a martyr's death for a known lie. Maybe one chump. But two, after he sees the other guy die, he's going to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm out. I'm going to cash in my chips. I'm out. But 11 of the 12 disciples died horrific deaths, stoned, crucified, crucified upside down, beheaded, tortured. And the 12th didn't die a martyr only because he was exiled to an island. Every scholar worth their salt says that in the very least, the disciples absolutely believed that Jesus rose again from the dead. They believed it with all their hearts. So did they have this hallucination? Did they make that up? Well, it's really hard to believe that when you read the accounts. If you look at the accounts, the disciples look so dumb. I mean, if you're going to start a cult... You don't make yourself, as the leader, look really dumb. You make yourself look really smart. But they look so dumb. One ran away naked because he just didn't want to get caught. He's like, I'd rather be like naked than be caught and die. I don't want to die, right? And so he ran away. Then he wrote this gospel. But, and they weren't even the first ones to see the resurrected Christ. If you want to start a cult, then you're the one that's... Look at all these other cults. They're the ones that saw the angel of God. They saw God. But they're not the first ones to see Jesus resurrected. If you're going to start a cult, rule number one is don't make yourself look like an idiot. But they didn't believe it from the start. They didn't even expect it. They were in hiding because they thought they would be next. They saw what they did to their teacher, and it was brutal. And they're like, we're next. I don't want this. And so in this particular account of the resurrection witness, they're all hiding. They go back to their homes, and Mary Magdalene is weeping outside the tomb of Jesus. And she is weeping and weeping because they had gone in the morning probably to put on more spices to minimize the stench of the decay of Jesus' body. Remember, when he was buried, he was buried on the Sabbath, so they couldn't go the next day to finish putting on spices. So they had to wait until the day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday today. And so there must have been a little bit of a rush. There must have been this worry, oh, it's going to really smell, and I want to honor Jesus' body. And so they go, and the tomb is empty. You know, Mary Magdalene had been with Jesus since Luke chapter 8, where Luke 
makes the note that she had been healed from seven demons. You know, to have one demon is bad enough. We have horror movies where one demon possesses someone. But she had seven. That's a, that's a movie that I don't think anybody's willing to make. But she was delivered and had not stopped following our Lord since. This was her way of honoring someone that she dearly loved. And we start this account with her uncontrollably sobbing. She is weeping so much that she can't even really see. But as she's weeping, she peers inside. She peeks inside the tomb and she sees two angels. One seated where Jesus' head would have been and one seated where his feet would have been. John, Ar- John MacArthur would make this connection between this seat and the mercy seat. And we went over Exodus in this church. And in Exodus 25, the Lord gives instruction on how to build a tabernacle. And once you go into the Holy of Holies, there is the mercy seat. And this mercy seat is supposed to be made of pure gold. Every year on the Day of Atonement, they would take the sacrifice, kill the sacrificial lamb, take the blood. The high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies. Only one person every year had to go into the Holy of Holies and then take that blood and sprinkle it. And that sprinkled place was called the mercy seat. And when God gave the instruction to make the mercy seat, he would say on each side of the mercy seat, you are to build a cherub, an angel. Each side and each end of the mercy seat was an angel. And they would say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she responds by saying, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, there's no thought of resurrection here. She either doesn't know or just doesn't care that they're angels too. She's the one that had someone who loved her like no one else could ever love her, take, be taken away. She went from being corrupted and oppressed by seven demons to the love and fellowship of the Son of God, and she was distraught. If you look at her words, she still called him my Lord. The least she could do was put on some spices. Is what she thought. If you continue on the account in Exodus 25, after God gives the instructions for the mercy seat, This is how he ends that section. After he gives the instructions on how to build the mercy seat, in Exodus 25, in verse 22, it says, There I will meet you. There I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There I will meet you. And when she turned around, Jesus was standing there. Only she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
The term for woman is not a derogative term. It's not a low term. The term for woman is translated from gunai. Gunai is a respectful term for woman. Jesus calls his mother that when he did the miracle in Cana with the wine, right? Gunai. But she has no reason to believe that this is Jesus because that's how impossible a resurrection would have been in her mind. And so she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. And she pleads with him, please tell me where you have put the body of Jesus. And it gets even more amazing than that. This is the amazing part. Jesus says, Mary. And instantly, instantly she knew that it was Jesus. Just like when Jesus said earlier in uh, the Gospel of John that his sheep know his voice, when he called her name, she knew that this was her Lord. She knew that this was the one she was seeking, and he has found her. She responds by calling him teacher, or as we read today, Rabboni. In the Hebrew, it's Chabuni, right? But Rabbani is our anglicized way of saying it. And scholars would say, Rabbani isn't only an honorific way of saying rabbi. It's something that you would actually never call someone. You would never call someone rabbi. And the reason why is because you would use this particular honorific to refer to the rabbi when you're talking with someone else. So if I'm talking about rabbi this person then i would when talking about that rabbi to this person i would say rabbi this person as an honorific term my dot my dad's side of the family happens to be a little bit more traditional and when i was younger i was taught that i shouldn't use my father's name outright when referring to him so if someone asked me what my father's name was, I would say his name is Syllable J, Syllable D, Syllable Kim. That's the high honorific that I could display to someone that I have for my father when referring to him. And in a similar fashion, obviously, when I want to call my dad, I'm not going to say Syllable J, syllable D, syllable Kim when referring to him. So you wouldn't call someone that. It's a super high honorific. And in a similar fashion, when people would use Rabbanai, it would be the highest honorific they knew. She, Mary, is ecstatic. She is in cloud nine to the nth degree. She grabs a hold of him and Jesus says something which might be a little bit difficult for us to understand but he says this, do not cling to me. The word here is from the word touch, right? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There are multiple interpretations of this line, ranging from the ridiculous to the outright incredulous. One even thinks that it's because Jesus' physical body was like phasing in and out, not fully formed, that Jesus is like, please don't touch me. 
I was like, what is he, like a caterpillar? But that's, that's not right. Mary was clinging on to Jesus as if to convey that now she's seen him. I am never going to let you go ever again. I am never going to let you go ever again, just in case I might lose you, not even for a millisecond. I'm never going to let you go. And Jesus' reply says not to cling on him and not to worry because he has not ascended to the Father yet. And so he sends Mary out to tell the other disciples, and this is where I want to stop. He says, tell the other brothers, but go to my brothers. I'm going to take a quick pause here. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that believers have been called brothers. Friends, yes. Disciples, yes. But brother, never until now. It is because the cross has made us brothers and sisters with Christ. Through the cross, we are children of God. In Hebrews 2.11, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Even the thought of this would have been blasphemous to the Jewish religion. And yet, here in Hebrews, we see that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And it goes on, because we now share the same flesh and blood like brothers really do. We are in the same family. Like it says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. In Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And this is what Christ tells Mary to say to them. I am ascending to my father, your father, my God, your God. The resurrection of Jesus is the divine recognition that those who believe and follow Jesus are accepted into the household of God. Jesus has defeated sin and death, paid the wages so that we, through the death of Jesus Christ, can have life and life to the full. That word, in John 10.10, 10, when Jesus says, I have come to give life, and life in abundance or in the full, depending on what translation you read, that word full or in abundance is the word person, which is the word for excessive. The life that Christ gives us is not just scrounging and barely getting by. It's an overflow. It's a surplus Life in an excess that is promised to his brothers and sisters through his life, death, and resurrection. And we start to wonder how rich are the riches of God? And yet in Jesus Christ, we are called co-heirs with him. 
The resurrection was a real historical event in history proving Jesus' claims and assuring us of the promises that we have in Christ. And the people of God know exactly what we are saying when we say Christ is risen indeed. Place your faith in Jesus. Give your life to Him because He is mighty to save. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday in which we are reminded of the glorious resurrection, the first fruits, our Savior, our Lord, our Rabuni, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that we have this incredible privilege of being sons and daughters of the living God now. And we pray that now we might live rightly in accordance with your commandments so that we can please you as living sacrifices just as you've shown us the way. Help us also to follow you all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.